Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. In the late 18th century, the untamed country of Kentucky and Illinois was still the wild frontier. Before it could be tamed by settlers, it was the domain of some of the most bloodthirsty killers and thieves in American history. Among them were two men who terrorized the frontier out of pure bloodlust. It took years for the authorities to end their killing spree because the Harp brothers didn't choose their victims. They simply killed anyone who got in their way, including women and children. In fact, on August 16, 1978, one of the brothers smashed a baby's head against a tree. He said he did it because she annoyed him by constantly crying. That was bad enough, but the worst part, it was his own daughter. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Are ghosts and shadow people the same thing? Author Jacob Shelton doesn't think so and gives us an in-depth essay behind his reasoning. In September 1935, the Labor Day hurricane obliterated the Florida Keys, killing hundreds. Even today, more than 83 years later, skeletal remains still continue to occasionally be found, as do some of their ghosts. Nathaniel Bar Jonah was accused of murdering a child. Soon, his neighbors remembered the strange meat he had given them years before. Was the notorious Dr. Crippen convicted and executed in 1910 for the murder of his wife Cora actually innocent? Two women decide to move into a flat together, but quickly find out they might have a paranormal third roommate they didn't know about. And in the wild frontier of the 1790s, Americans had much to be worried about. Drought, famine, being injured with no one there to get help for you, poisonous snakes, hungry wolves, even being scalped by bloodthirsty natives of the land. But nothing was so scary as the Harp Brothers. We begin with that story. Also, be sure to continue listening through the end of the podcast because that's when I'll discuss what the plans are for Weird Darkness on Halloween. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, grab your my pillow, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. 
Not much is known about the Harp brothers before they began their crime spree, and it's hard to separate fact from legend about everything they did. Most likely, they were born in Orange County, North Carolina to a Scottish family, but some accounts say they were actually cousins, Joshua and William Harper, who changed their names when they arrived from Scotland in 1759. McKejar Big Harp and Wiley Little Harp were said to have fought for the British during the Revolutionary War. It was not for their loyalty to the crown, but simply so they could kill and torture people without punishment. Allegedly, the brothers joined a gang of criminals in North Carolina, and they raped, stole, burned down properties, and murdered Patriot colonists. One account stated that the gang kidnapped, raped, and murdered three teenage girls. A fourth girl that was taken but was rescued by Captain Frank Wood, who managed to wound Little Harp. This would not be Captain Wood's last encounter with the brothers either. After the war, the Harps moved west and settled among the Chickamauga Cherokee people at Nickajack, near Chattanooga, Tennessee. They stayed there for around 12 years after kidnapping two young women and forcing them to be their wives. The unfortunate girls were Maria Davidson and Susan Wood, Captain Wood's daughter. The women were treated like animals, beaten, kept in chains, and raped. Some stories say that Maria and Susan became pregnant several times, and each time the brothers murdered the children. The brothers fled Nickajack in 1794 after word reached their settlement that the authorities had learned of their location. They took the women to Powell's Valley near Knoxville, where the brothers began robbing and killing settlers who passed through the region. A few years later, the Harps began their so-called Trail of Death, a killing spree across Tennessee, Kentucky, and Illinois. In 1797, the brothers were chased out of Knoxville for stealing livestock and for murder, and they fled into Kentucky. After several more murders, they earned the attention of law enforcement, and after a local innkeeper informed on them, the Harps were arrested and locked up in Danville, Kentucky. They didn't stay behind bars for long, though. They managed to escape, and before going on the run, murdered the son of the innkeeper who had testified against them. Kentucky Governor James Garrard placed a $300 bounty on their heads. The Harps crossed the Ohio River into Illinois, murdered five men along the way, and found refuge with a band of outlaws at Cave-In Rock. The cave was a stronghold for bandits and river pirates, which were then led by Samuel Mason, who organized raids on these slow flatboats that were traveling down the Ohio River. The Harps soon introduced even more vile methods of murder to the already violent gang. Unlike the pirates, the Harps did not wait until nightfall or the cover of a storm to do their dirty work. They operated boldly in broad daylight. Their most effective method was to appear on the riverbank and flag down passing boats, usually telling them that they had been attacked by Indians or robbed and needed help. When the sympathetic travelers came ashore, the Harps would slaughter them on the spot and raid the boat. 
Their trademark method of murder was to disembowel their victims, load their stomachs with stones, and then sink the bodies in the river. As it later turned out, the harps were too vile for even the rough outlaws at Kivin Rock. After a raid on a flatboat, the sole survivor of the craft was stripped of his clothes, tied onto a blindfolded horse, and run off a cliff while the harps watched and howled with delight. The other outlaws who witnessed this were sickened by the brothers' bloodthirsty entertainment and forced the harps and their women to leave. The murderous brothers, together with their wives and the children they had allowed to live, returned to Tennessee. The murders that have been credited to them continued, including William Ballard, who had been disemboweled and thrown in the Holton River, James Brassel, who had his throat slashed, and John Graves and his teenage son, who were found dead with their heads cleaved in by axes. In Logan County, the Harps killed a little girl, a young slave, and an entire family they found asleep in their camp. Then, on August 16, 1798, Big Harp committed his most vicious crime when he smashed his baby daughter's head against a tree because her crying annoyed him. Later, he stated that this was the only killing that he felt remorse for. A week later, the brothers embarked on one more terrible murder spree. The Stiegel family in Webster County offered them shelter in their house, unaware that the Harps were monsters. That night, the brothers killed another guest named Major William Love, the Stiegel's four-month-old child, because he was crying, and Mrs. Stiegel after she began screaming when she discovered her murdered child. The Harps then set the cabin on fire in an effort to conceal the crime. John Stiegel, the husband and father of the latest Harps victims, formed a posse with another man, John Leeper. They were determined to hunt down the Harps and found them on August 24, 1799. When the brothers were told to surrender, they tried to flee. Big Harper was wounded in the chase and was pulled off his horse by John Leeper. He'd been shot in the spine and was unable to walk. While Harp lay dying, he confessed to twenty of the numerous murders that he committed, but he never begged for his life. John Steagle produced a knife with which to cut off the killer's head, and Harp simply growled, "'Cut away and be damned!' Big Harp's head was placed on a stake and left outside the ruins of the Steagle house as a warning to other outlaws. The area where the homestead was once located is still known as Harp's Head Road today. Little Harp managed to escape from the posse, and he joined back up with Samuel Mason at Cave Inn Rock. He stayed with the gang for four years, until he got caught up in a plot to kill Mason. A reward had been placed on Mason's head, dead or alive, of $1,000. This was a grand sum in those days, but Harp didn't just want the money. He wanted to take over Mason's criminal enterprise. He contrived to get Mason alone, then Little Harp buried his tomahawk into his friend's back. He finished him off and then hacked off Mason's head. He carried the grisly object off and placed it on the desk of the judge who had been charged with dispensing the reward. The men who were present that day all confirmed that he brought in the head of Samuel Mason 
but just as the judge was counting out the gold coins in payment, one of the bystanders recognized Little Harp as an outlaw himself. He tried to escape, but it was too late. He was captured and hanged in January 1804. His head was placed on a spike along Natchez Road. It was a fitting end to a man who had brought so much terror and fear to the frontier for so many years. In our recent family reunion in Singapore, I shared with my mother and sisters about YGS when the conversation wandered on to the subject of strange experiences. My younger sister Kara then revealed that she was sensitive to the spirits as well. Around 2002, Kara decided to further her studies and get a degree. She and her friend B attended university together and they found accommodation in nearby Bedford Park a southern suburb in Adelaide, South Australia. The units, or flats, at Bedford Park were built in a basic utilitarian design. Four square-shaped units arranged side-by-side like boxes, three stories stacked one above the other in exactly the same way. It was not five-star housing, but the location was close to campus and the rent was reasonable for students on a shoestring budget. The entrance to their ground floor unit opened onto the living room slash dining room, which in turn led on the far right into the master bedroom. A short hallway separated the master from the second bedroom, with the latter having the bathroom on its left. The kitchen was located just beyond the living and dining area, sharing a common wall with the bathroom. My mother came over from Singapore later that year to spend some time with my sister who was the youngest to leave the nest. Mum stayed there for a week before flying to Sydney to see me for a few days and then came back to Adelaide for the remainder of her stay. While she was there at Bedford Park, Mum helped with taking out the garbage. She did this without incident for an entire week. After she returned from Sydney to Bedford Park, she made her way as usual out the kitchen by the back door to the Bin Bay area the little path led past the electrical fuse box on the far wall. Somehow, on this occasion, Mum couldn't get past the fuse box. It was late afternoon, there was still plenty of light around, she couldn't see anything there that would be causing the problem, but she was certain that something big was in front of her blocking her way. Whatever it was, it was not about to let her past. Mystified by this, Mom gave up after a few attempts, deciding to try again another time. The next morning, she was able to reach the bin bay without any problem. On her way back to the unit, she met the neighbor who lived upstairs with her young daughter. When Mom mentioned her odd experience, the woman's eyes widened. I felt that same way too. Kara agreed with Mom there was something not quite right about the whole property but it was the best she could find at the time, and she could not afford the cost of moving. By now, she had the skin-prickling sensation of being watched at all hours of the day or night, especially in the master bedroom, which was hers. She had the clear impression of resentment and that someone, 
or something, was really unhappy at having them there. Kara found herself staying away from the living room unless B was with her. A tree grew outside the living room window. Its leafy foliage obscured part of the natural light coming in from the street. She thought it had an odd cold spot. It was always exceptionally cooler in temperature from the rest of the place, even during the heat of summer. She and her flatmate, B, spent many hours checking all the doors, windows, nooks, and crannies for areas where drafts could have possibly been sneaking in, but there wasn't even a crack. B proved to be even more sensitive than Kara to the nuances around the unit. She had chosen the smaller second room as being less unsettled of the two, but she soon felt so troubled in the place that she asked her parents for help. B's parents asked the pastor at their church to cleanse and bless the unit. The uneasiness didn't exactly disappear for either of them, but it calmed down noticeably for a while. But gradually, over time, the strangeness began to build up again. Then my sister woke up in the middle of the night with the weirdest feeling that someone was calling her. Kara sat up in bed and saw a shadow standing at the foot of her bed. From the width of the shoulders and the height, she had the impression it was a tall male figure looking down at her with a puzzled air and some curiosity. Kara had a distinct thought in her mind that she knew came from this shadow man. Who are you and what are you doing here? So she thought the thought right back at it, but I live here now. At her reply, the shadow man disappeared. Fully awake now and quite unnerved, Kara got out of bed and turned on all the lights. She promptly did a search all through her bedroom, flinging open the cupboards, looking under the bed, everywhere she could think of, but she didn't find a thing. In the days, months, and years after that encounter, Kara would still get the occasional fleeting glimpse of a long shadow out of the corner of her eyes, but the disturbing feelings of being warned away subsided. Kara ended up staying there for a total of seven years. There was no further episode with the Shadow Man. She and B got used to sensing the other flatmate simply as a quiet presence in the background. Up next, was the notorious Dr. Crippen convicted and executed in 1910 for the murder of his wife Cora actually innocent? that story, and many others when Weird Darkness returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the terrifying audiobook The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by G. Michael Vasey. This terrifying sequel to the book Black-Eyed Kids has stories of small children turning up on people's doorsteps all across the world, spreading fear and terror and these stories have only increased over time. Supernatural expert G. Michael Vasey carefully investigates this truly terrifying phenomenon using real-life encounters with these scary supernatural beings. The result is an unsettling and sometimes terrifying book that will have you fearfully anticipating the next knock at your door. Who and what are these mysterious visitors to the doorstep? Are they demons? Aliens? What do they want? Why do they need to enter your home 
and what happens if they do. Small kids that ask to use your phone or ask for a ride, and yet those that encounter them are scared to death even before they notice the black eyes. The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by G. Michael Vasey, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Get the audiobook free by signing up for a 30-day free trial of Audible. IRS Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800-417-9743. That's 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743. For many years, Dr. Crippen was a name that would make the blood run cold. Once the star exhibit of Madame Tussauds' Chamber of Horrors, the infamous murderer has become a byword for cold-eyed evil. His case became famous because of the global communications age, with Crippen becoming the first fugitive from justice to be captured with the aid of the then-new wireless telegraph. Holly Harvey Crippen was an American homeopath living in London, charged in 1910 with murdering his wife Cora. His capture, trial, conviction, and execution were played out on newspaper front pages around the world. The doctor's reserved, emotionless demeanor convinced readers of his guilt, and at his death by hanging in November that year, he had few defenders. Crippen's trial was one of the first to center around the embryonic discipline of forensic pathology, with the prosecution presenting seemingly incontrovertible scientific evidence of his guilt. The story begins with the disappearance of Crippen's wife Cora after a dinner party at their home in January 1910. When police questioned the doctor about his wife's whereabouts, he first told them that she had moved back to America, where she had then died. Later, he changed his story, claiming she had actually returned to America to live with her lover, music hall actor Bruce Miller. Holly Crippen was, by all accounts, the classic henpecked husband, constantly undermined by his overbearing, flamboyant wife. Cora was often openly unfaithful to Holly, taking a string of younger lovers and flaunting the fact in public. Crippen himself had also taken a lover, secretary Ethel Lenev, in response to his wife's infidelity. The motive for murder was as old as the hills. With the police sniffing around, 
Crippen and his mistress went on the run, believing it was only a matter of time before they were arrested. Their disappearance led to further searches of the house, culminating in the discovery of a horror show in the coal cellar, a mass of rotting, dismembered human flesh wrapped in a pair of old pajamas. Pioneering forensic pathologist Bernard Spilsbury determined the remains to be of Crippen's wife Cora by matching surgery marks on a piece of still-intact skin. Spilbury also found traces of the drug hyacine in the flesh, which police discovered Crippen had purchased shortly before Cora's disappearance. Things looked bad for Holly Harvey Crippen, exacerbated by his decision to leave the country. Attempting to abscond to Canada aboard the SS Montrose, the couple posed as father and son, with the diminutive Ethel disguised as a boy. The ship's captain, Henry George Kendall, aware that Scotland Yard were pursuing the pair, had seen through Ethel's paltry disguise and used the ship's brand-new Marconi wireless telegraph to radio his suspicions to the authorities. Quote, "...have strong suspicions that Crippen, London, cellar murderer and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Accomplice dressed as boy, manner and build undoubtedly a girl." Unquote. Inspector Walter Dew of Scotland Yard boarded a faster ship to Quebec and was waiting with the Canadian police to arrest Crippen and Lenev as the SS Montrose arrived in the harbor. This apprehension, using wireless communications, was a historical first in 1910. The subsequent trial at the Old Bailey was dominated by the new science of forensics, with Crippen himself showing little emotion or remorse during the proceedings. The jury swiftly found him guilty, and on the 22nd of October, Justice Richard Everard Webster donned a black cap to deliver his damning verdict. Holly Harvey Crippen, you have been convicted upon evidence which could leave no doubt on the minds of any reasonable men that you cruelly poisoned your wife, that you concealed your crime, you mutilated her body and disposed piecemeal of her remains. On the ghastly and wicked nature of the crime, I will not dwell," the judge added, before delivering the ultimate punishment of death by hanging. Crippen was subsequently executed at Pentonville Jail on November 23rd, his only request to be buried with a photograph of Ethel. Whilst few questioned the doctor's guilt, some aspects of the case were strange. The remains found in the basement of the Crippen's house were missing the head, limbs, and skeleton. Why had Crippen gone to the trouble of dismembering and disposing of his wife's body elsewhere only to leave part of it in his home? These curiosities aside, it wasn't until 2007 that a serious challenge to the long-standing belief in Crippen's guilt emerged. Like most people, forensic toxicologist John Trestrail had heard the name Dr. Crippen, but it wasn't until he learned of the details of the case that alarm bells began to ring in his head. Cora Crippen's murder contained one feature so unusual that Trestrail had never encountered it before in over 20 years of practice. According to the prosecution pathologist Bernard Spilsbury, the cause of death was poison yet Crippen was also accused of dismembering the body. 
For Trestrail, this made no sense. Murderers invariably chose poison to kill their victims because they want to pass the death off as natural or an accident. So why dismember the body? Trestrail's investigation pushed Crippen's descendants to commission new tests on the piece of tissue Spillsbury had used to identify the body. The results were a bombshell. The DNA extracted from the remains was not from Cora. Was Dr. Crippen, a man whose name had become synonymous with murder, innocent after all? For forensic toxicologist John Trestrail, the Crippen case was an anomaly. As a veteran of hundreds of FBI cases and the author of standard textbooks on the subject, Crippen's mutilation of a victim he had poisoned was something he had never seen before. A poisoner wants the death to appear natural so he can get a death certificate. This is the only case I know of where the victim was dismembered. It doesn't make sense, Trestrail said. If Crippen was the culprit, then he had essentially filleted his wife's body, leaving nothing but a tangled mess of flesh and skin hidden beneath a slab in his cellar. Gone entirely were Cora's head, limbs, skeleton, and sex organs. The grisly treatment of Cora's corpse raises the obvious question as to whether someone as timid as Crippen could have done something so horrific. But more crucially, why did he? Having successfully disposed of the majority of his wife's body – indeed, none of the other body parts have ever been found – why did Crippen leave these small scraps wrapped up in a pair of pajamas where they would surely be discovered? The strangeness of his behavior has led some to speculate that Crippen was framed by the police, although there appears little other evidence or even motive for this to be the case. Clearly, if Cora had later turned up alive, it would have been incredibly damaging for Spillsbury and the police to have staked their reputation on the belief that she was buried in Crippen's cellar. Those remains did contain a piece of skin featuring what Spillsbury identified as a surgery scar. This scar was found to be consistent with a four-inch scar Cora had from an operation of her abdomen some years previously. In the pre-CSI era, and to a jury unused to forensic evidence, Spillsbury's findings looked incredibly persuasive, so much so that it took them just 27 minutes to return a guilty verdict at the trial. Spillsbury was a brilliant man whose findings during his lifetime were rarely challenged. However, working with primitive equipment at the infancy of forensics, some of his conclusions look somewhat less impressive to modernize. A modern-day forensic scientist, David Foran of Michigan State University, believes Spillsbury was overreaching in his evidence at the Crippen trial, and the surgery scar was nothing more than a fold of skin, something the defense at the trial had argued to little avail. Foran believes the marks on the skin are simply natural folds because of the visible hair follicles present on the surface, something that would not be the case if it was scar tissue. Trestrail was also skeptical about the poison Crippen was supposed to have used, a common sedative and depressant named hyacine that he'd never seen used in any other poisoning case in the literature. With hyacine so rare 
in poisoning cases and toxicology still primitive in 1910. Trestrail believes the prosecution's team would not have searched for, let alone found, the presence of the drug in the remains. Several theories have been posited about the presence of hyacine in the body recovered from Crippen's cellar. Renowned barrister Edward Marshall Hall thought Crippen may have been using hyacine on his wife as a sexual depressant due to her promiscuity and had accidentally given her an overdose. If that theory is true, it still leaves us with the conundrum of why Crippen had disposed of his wife's body in two locations, electing to leave lumps of flesh in his own cellar. Nobody had ever provided a convincing motive for Crippen's actions in this regard, and it remains a tantalizing mystery at the heart of the case. Whilst the evidence used to convict Dr. Crippen at his trial now looks speculative at best, Trestrail's trump card is something undreamt of in the days of Bernard Spilsbury. DNA. Spurred on by his investigation, Trestrail enlisted forensic biologist David Foran to conduct DNA tests on a sample of skin tissue preserved from Spilsbury's original 1910 slides at the Royal London Hospital. Trestrail had used genealogists to meticulously unravel Cora Crippen's convoluted family tree in the hope of finding modern-day relatives, and eventually found Marie Hamill, a 64-year-old Californian living quietly in a suburb of Los Angeles. Foran's team at the Forensic Biology Lab at Michigan State University compared a DNA swab provided by Hamill against DNA from the century-old Royal Hospital samples only to come to a startling conclusion that threatened to turn one of crime's most famous cases on its head. The skin Spillsbury had used all those years ago to send Dr. Crippen to the gallows was not from Cora Crippen. In fact, the DNA wasn't even female. With one fell swoop, both the central case against Crippen that he had murdered his wife and rumors that he may have been conducting illegal backstreet abortions crumbled. Foran's results have come under fire, but he stands firm against criticism that the samples were too old to reliably test. A slide in a museum is a pretty nice way to preserve DNA, he said. Compare that to bones that have been in the ground for thousands of years. There was a lot more DNA work that showed unequivocally that the remains were male. Other critics believe that the modern-day relatives of Cora may not actually be blood relations, thus nullifying the results, although this is something denied by Marie Hamill, who is the granddaughter of Cora's half-sister, Bertha Mersinger. Assuming the DNA findings are correct, the results have led to speculation that Crippen may have murdered one of Cora's lovers, or even that he was some undiscovered Edwardian serial killer. Whatever the truth, the DNA evidence suggested that even if Crippen had killed Cora, he had not buried her remains at Hilldrop Crescent. In light of the circumstantial evidence against him, and with such an obvious motive for murder, Crippen's explanation for his wife's disappearance always looked unbelievable. However, some tantalizing hints do exist that suggest the possibility he was telling the truth. Most of these were suppressed at the trial for fear they might damage the case against the doctor, 
but have been rediscovered over the years by researchers into the enduring case. One statement obtained by the police, not used at the trial, was from a cab driver who testified that two weeks before Cora's disappearance, he had helped a woman matching her description carry six steamer trunks from the house at Hilldrop Crescent. Similar evidence that around the same time Cora may have tried to withdraw a large sum of money from the Crippen deposit account was also not followed up. Several letters were sent to Crippen at Pentonville Prison from a woman claiming to be Cora, one stating, I don't want to be responsible for your demise if I can save you in this way, but I will never come forward personally as I am happy now. Whilst it's generally thought these letters are hoaxes, an all-too-common hindrance in many high-profile criminal case, they were never passed on to Crippen's defense and so were not investigated further to determine their provenance. If the forensic case against Dr. Crippen now looks decidedly unsound, the circumstantial one remains as strong as ever. Crippen's lies, suspicious behavior, his flight from justice, and his refusal to talk are all redolent of some kind of guilt. But was it of his wife's murder? Shortly after Cora's disappearance had become noticed, Crippen started to claim that his wife had returned to the United States. He would later write to her friends, saying that Cora had unfortunately been taken ill and passed away. This naturally aroused suspicion. Why had Cora not written to her friends herself or told them she was returning to America? Suspicion only grew when Crippen moved his mistress, Ethel Lenev, into his house and she began to openly wear Cora's clothing and jewelry. After a few weeks had passed and the whispers about Crippen had become louder, Chief Inspector Dew of the Metropolitan Police called by to question the doctor about his wife's absence. Crippen admitted to Dew that he had made up the entire story about his wife's death out of embarrassment because she had in fact eloped to Chicago with one of her lovers from the music hall. Having made Dew his confidant about this delicate matter, the detective was inclined to believe Crippen. A subsequent search of the house revealed nothing and Dew elected to drop the matter. What Holly Crippen did next did not look like the actions of an innocent man, though. Scenting that the police may not believe him, he and Ethel fled the country, taking the ferry to Brussels before moving on to Antwerp where they boarded the SS Montrose for their ill-fated voyage to Canada. Would a man, entirely innocent of wrongdoing, really have upturned his whole life to become a fugitive? It's impossible to know what was going on in Crippen's mind at the time, but his actions almost look tantamount to a confession. The case against Dr. Crippen looked open and shut. Shortly after his wife vanished without trace, body parts are found in his cellar. At the first sign of the police, he fled the country. Any prosecution would have successfully won the case against him on circumstantial evidence alone. For their part, Crippen's defense attempted to argue the human remains had predated their client's residence at Hilldrop Crescent and must have been deposited there by a previous tenant. However, the prosecution would soon thwart Crippen's last chance of escaping the gallows. Crippen's trial at the Old Bailey lasted just five days. Faced with a barrage of damning evidence against their client, 
The defense countered with the argument that the body buried under the coal cellar was not Cora and had been left there before the couple had moved into the house. This line of defense looked futile from the off. Holly and Cora Crippen had moved into the house at Hilldrop Crescent in 1905. The body was discovered in 1910. Could the couple really have lived there for more than five years, unaware that a putrefying corpse was buried in a shallow grave in their ground-floor coal cellar? Crippen's hopes were comprehensively dashed when fragments of a pajama top found amongst the flesh was traced back to a local firm of shirtmakers from the still-intact label which read, Jones Brothers, Holloway, LTD. An employee from the firm was called to testify who confirmed to the courtroom that Jones Brothers had not become a limited company until 1906, the year after Crippen had moved into the house. This put to bed any doubt that whoever was buried in the cellar had been put there before Crippen was a resident. But in order to be sure the conviction, the prosecution had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was specifically Cora and not some other unfortunate who had somehow met a grim fate in the Crippen cellar. The scar Bernard Spilsbury had found on a piece of skin was the most obvious connection, matching as it did a surgery scar Cora was known to have. Also strewn amongst the remains were three Heinz hair curlers of the type Cora was known to use wrapped in brownish-blonde hair that matched the doctor's missing wife. To round off the case against Crippen, the prosecution produced evidence from an Oxford Street chemist that Crippen had purchased a large quantity of the drug hyacine, he claimed as an ingredient for his homemade patent medicines, a fortnight before Cora's disappearance. This was the very toxic substance prosecution toxicologist William Wilcox had detected in the remains from the coal cellar. Given the weight of evidence against him, the jury at the trial really had little choice but to send Crippen to the gallows. Back in 1910, the criminal justice system enacted its verdicts with startling haste, and just a month after his sentencing, Crippen was hung. Ethel Lenev was tried separately and acquitted of being an accessory after the fact, after which she emigrated to America and disappeared from the public eye. The case, however, has never left the public conscience and even inspired a popular song of the era. Dr. Crippen killed Bella Elmore, ran away with Miss Lenev right across the ocean blue, followed by Inspector Dew, Chips Ahoy, Naughty Boy. Whether Dr. Crippen deserves his reputation as one of history's most notorious murderers is debatable. The case may have become one of countless obscure domestic murders if not for the novelty of Crippen's capture and the gruesome nature of the crime. The doctor's presence among other infamous murders in the chilling chamber of horrors at Madame Tussauds and his depiction in fiction have also done much to secure his place in the public imagination. Today, modern forensics has raised serious doubts about the identity of the victim in the coal cellar. On one hand, we have 1910-era CSI and an ironclad circumstantial case. On the other, we have seemingly incontrovertible DNA evidence that the body was not Crippen's wife. The two are not entirely irreconcilable. Even if Dr. Crippen's unlikely story about Cora was true and he did not murder her, 
he was surely responsible for someone's death. But Crippen never talked, and whatever secrets lurked in the gloom of that dank cellar went with him to his grave. When Weird Darkness Returns Are ghosts and shadow people the same thing? Author Jacob Shelton doesn't think so and gives us an in-depth essay behind his reasoning. In September 1935, the Labor Day hurricane obliterated the Florida Keys, killing hundreds. Even today, skeletal remains still continue to occasionally be found, as do some of their ghosts and Nathaniel Barjona was accused of murdering a child. Soon, his neighbors remembered the strange meat he had given them years before. These stories are up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Why don't we hear what Weird Darkness family member Mike had to say about his? Darren, I happen to be trying new pillows from different sources, something different than the standard pillows that get crappy all too soon. So, what the heck? My pillow sounded worth trying. I ordered two queen-size MyPillows, and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Mike said he received two queen-size MyPillows, that's because he heard about them on Weird Darkness and he was able to get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code WEIRD, that's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life, but if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it. And if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Helpline is there for you right now, no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you, but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. They can help you find a way off that dark path you're on in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 800-830-9804. 800-830-9804. Congratulations to Julie Danielson. She is this week's Weird Darkness podcast retweet winner and is receiving a Weird Darkness coffee mug. Next week's winner receives a Weird Darkness t-shirt. If you want to win, it's easy to register. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you'd like. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. So follow Weird Darkness right now and get to retweeting, you weirdo.
on September 2, 1935, the Labor Day hurricane slammed into the Florida Keys, obliterating everything in its path and sweeping scores of men, women, and children out to sea. At least 423 people died in the Category 5 storm, though no one knows just how many perished. Even today, lost victims' skeletal remains occasionally surface, along with whispered tales of ghosts. In 1935, the only way in and out of the Keys was by boat or by rail. As the storm drew near, escape by boat became impossible, and nearly 1,000 people found themselves trapped. A rescue train braved the pounding wind and rain, but was overcome when it stopped to help the stranded. The train cars quickly flooded, and many of the people who thought themselves saved were drowned or swept away. For years after the disaster, reports of a phantom train plagued the area. The Key West extension of the Florida East Coast Railway was never rebuilt after the storm, but in the early 1940s, weird events began to experience along the old line, reports American Hauntings, Inc. The sound of a steam engine and a train whistle could sometimes be heard later at night, and occasionally a headlight could be seen silently rolling by in the early hours of the morning. The Phantom Train isn't the only hurricane-related haunting. Legend has it the victims' tortured spirits roam the swamps at night, searching for help that never comes. The hunched figures reportedly stagger in the same direction before fading back into the darkness, only to repeat their fruitless march another night. Do you think victims of the Labor Day hurricane haunt Key West to this day? Or are the stories nothing more than remnants from the tragic past? At more than 300 pounds, Nathaniel Bar Jonah cut an intimidating figure in the small Montana town of Great Falls. But few in Great Falls knew just how frightened they truly should have been. Bar Jonah had moved to Great Falls from Massachusetts, where he had just finished a long sentence for the sexual assault and attempted murder of a young boy. And in this sleepy town at the edge of the Rockies, he would strike again. But now he had a taste for human flesh. Nathaniel Bar Jonah was born David Paul Brown in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1957, and there were early signs that he was not a normal child. In 1964, Bar Jonah received a Ouija board for his seventh birthday. Using the promise of trying the board out, he lured a five-year-old neighbor into his basement. There, he tried to strangle her. Luckily, the girl's screams alerted Barjona's mother, who ran downstairs and forced him to let her go. His mother likely assumed that the boy didn't know what he was doing, and nothing came of the incident. But in 1970, Barjona decided to try again. Promising another neighbor, a six-year-old boy, that they could go sledding, Barjona lured the child to a secluded area. He then sexually assaulted him. This became a pattern for Nathaniel Barjona, but as he grew older, he developed a more sophisticated technique to gain access to victims. 
1975, Bar-Jonah approached an eight-year-old boy on his way to school. Claiming to be a police officer, Bar-Jonah lured the boy into his car, where he began to sexually assault and strangle him. Luckily for the boy, a neighbor looking out their window saw the boy being abducted and called the police. Bar-Jonah was arrested but was only sentenced to a year's probation. The light sentence emboldened Bar-Jonah, and three years later, he abducted another two boys from a movie theater after claiming to be a police officer and telling them they were under arrest. He handcuffed the boys before taking them to a secluded area and molesting them. Trying to silence a potential witness, Bar-Jonah began strangling one of the children. When he was convinced that the boy was dead, he put the other victim in his trunk and drove away. Luckily, the boy had actually survived the attack and ran to get help. Barjona was soon found by the police with the other victim still in his trunk. This time, Barjona was charged with attempted murder and sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison. While in prison, Barjona began meeting with a psychiatrist. After hearing him describe his fantasies, which revolved around murdering, dissecting, and eventually eating children, the psychiatrist recommended that he be moved to a mental hospital. But in 1991, a judge concurred with psychiatric evaluations that had somehow found him to not be a dangerous threat. Inexplicably, the judge agreed to release Bar-Jonah on probation if he moved to Montana to live with his mother, though it was recommended that he seek psychiatric help. Just days after being released, Bar-Jonah spotted a seven-year-old boy sitting in a parked car. He forced his way into the car and tried to smother the boy by sitting on top of him. Luckily, Bar-Jonah was stopped by the boy's mother and was quickly arrested. Somehow, after the arrest, no one from the Massachusetts court followed up with probation officers in Montana, to which Bar-Jonah had quickly fled. This allowed Bar-Jonah to melt into the local community. By now, he had changed his name from David Brown to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Bar-Jonah, claiming that he wanted to know what it felt like to live with the persecution that Jewish people experienced. He alternatively claimed that he had always been Jewish, and the actual truth may never be known for sure. But despite the name change, he had changed little else about himself. In 1996, 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey disappeared on his way to school. His parents filed a missing person report, but the local police department wasn't used to this sort of crime. With few leads, the case went cold. Meanwhile, Nathaniel Bar-Jonah was living in a nearby apartment complex. There, he had secretly been luring young boys from the area inside his apartment before sexually assaulting them. He'd even installed a pulley from the ceiling where he hung at least one of them by the neck. Yet these crimes went undiscovered for years. One woman grew suspicious after her child suddenly became withdrawn and angry after spending time with Barjona. But no one thought that someone in Great Falls could be molesting children. And no one suspected that Barjona was a murderer. But other neighbors did notice that the food Bar-Jonah made for them was full of a strange meat 
that they couldn't identify. When asked, Barjona claimed that it had come from a deer he shot, though no one knew Barjona to ever go hunting. In 1999, he was arrested outside a local elementary school carrying a fake gun and dressed as a police officer. At first, the charge was simply impersonating an officer, but when the police searched Barjona's home, they made a shocking discovery. Inside Nathaniel Barjona's home, investigators discovered thousands of photos of children cut from magazines and a bizarre journal written in code. Even more importantly for the investigation, they also found a piece of human bone. The journal was sent to the FBI to be decoded while the police began looking into the possibility that Barjona had murdered Ramsey. Meanwhile, other neighbors now came forward with allegations that Barjona had been molesting their children, and Barjona was quickly charged with kidnapping and sexual assault. By the time the trial began, the FBI had decoded Barjona's journal. Inside, he described his obsession with torturing and murdering children. There was also a list of 22 names. Eight of them were known to be Nathaniel Barjona's earlier victims. Many of the rest were local children. The others were never identified. Even more disturbingly, the diary detailed his plans to cook and eat children. Barbecued kid, sex a la carte, my little kid dessert, little boy stew, little boy pot pies, and lunch is served on the patio with roasted child were all entries in Bar Jonah's twisted writings. Taken with the meat grinder that police found in Bar Jonah's home, the writings raised a dark suspicion. Thinking of the strange meals Bar Jonah had fed them, his neighbors began to wonder if Bar Jonah had murdered Ramsey and fed them his flesh. But Bar Jonah denied that he had killed Ramsey at all, and there was never enough evidence to prove these allegations of cannibalism one way or the other though there is more than enough circumstantial evidence to make one wonder. That said, there wasn't even enough evidence to substantiate the claim that Barjona had murdered Ramsey in the first place. And after the boy's mother claimed that she didn't think he did it, the charges were dropped. Instead, Barjona was sentenced to 130 years in prison for the molestation charges. Others in town wanted to take their own form of justice. One resident told the press that if Barjona were released, quote, his life wouldn't be worth a plug nickel around here, unquote. But no one would ever get the chance to kill Nathaniel Barjona. He was found dead in his cell in 2008. Morbidly obese, he died from cardiovascular disease. To this day, no one is sure how many people Nathaniel Bar Jonah killed. He is a possible suspect in several murders in Massachusetts, Wyoming, and Montana. But none have ever been conclusively solved. In the world of paranormal research, 
there are two distinct types of non-corporeal creatures – ghosts and shadow people. In many instances, it can be nearly impossible to tell the difference between ghosts and shadow people, but after some exhaustive research into these scary monsters and super creeps, here's a handy guide to help you figure out whether you're dealing with an energy-sucking shadow creature or a full-bodied apparition. Are ghosts and shadow people the same things? It's a question that's bogged down believers in the supernatural for a long time. While they both share similarities, they're definitely not the same thing. Not only are there different classes of shadow people, but the types of ghosts that you're likely to bump into aren't anything like the ominous figures cut by a shadow person. The following guidelines will teach you how to know if you saw a ghost or a shadow person lurking in your room and what to do about it. Paranormal experts have been debating for decades about whether or not ghosts can actually understand what is happening around them or if they are simply going through the motions of a past life. It is believed that ghostly apparitions are simply the residual energy left over when a person dies, meaning that while you may be able to see them, they can't see or interact with you. On the other hand, shadow people are sometimes corporeal beings who are, at best, believed to be from another dimension, and at worst, they may be demonic in nature. People who have had interactions with shadow people believe that the creatures make conscious decisions for how they'll treat a person, something a ghost can't do. One of the many stark differences between a ghost and a shadow person is that ghosts used to be a physical person, while shadow people have always been the creepy crawlies that come to you when you sleep. No one knows why the residual energy released when humans die creates ghosts for some people and not for others, but it very well may have something to do with that person having unfinished business on the corporeal plane. Shadow people have always existed. Whether they're from another dimension, a time traveler, or a demonic entity, it's believed that these creatures are fully aware of what they're doing. If you've never been visited by a ghost or a shadow person, your first experience with either can be terrifying and confusing. How do you know with which type of entity you're dealing? When it comes to ghosts, there are a few different types of entities that you can encounter. There are ghosts with interactive personalities, like Bruce Willis at the end of The Sixth Sense, or a Civil War battlefield ghost. But there are also ectoplasmic mists that are just as visible as interactive full-body apparitions. Aside from the two visible and easily recognizable types of ghosts, there are poltergeists or noisy ghosts, which are essentially pure energy. You're more likely to experience one of these if you have a teenager in the home or a large amount of pent-up negative energy. They knock things down, break windows, etc. Finally, there are orbs and the swirling bits of light that are most commonly seen in photographs. Shadow people, though, are usually described as being tall and human-like, but as if their bodies are made of shadows rather than flesh and blood. The most notable shadow person is the Hat Man, 
who's been appearing since at least 2001 since he was discussed on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM. It's been theorized that Hatman is a separate phenomena from shadow people, even though he appears in the same way as the rest of his creepy brethren. Trying to determine the intentions of a ghost is nearly impossible. You might find, depending on what type of paranormal phenomenon with which you're dealing, that the ghost doesn't have any intentions. If you have a poltergeist in the home, it's taking cues from you or whomever's negative energy helped manifest the creature, and it's going to keep doing what it's doing until you cleanse the home. If you're dealing with an interactive ghost, it could be reenacting something from its life over and over without any ill intent towards you, despite the negative ramifications of a ghost clanging and banging around your house. The intent of a shadow creature is nothing but malicious. Since the first report of a shadow person, there have not been any claims of one of these creatures doing anything positive whatsoever. Many paranormal experts believe that shadow people want to feed off your negative energy and fear. An interesting theory posited about shadow people is that they're likely aware of other types of paranormal creatures and that they feed off them the same way they feed off of humans. If a spirit or an entity is trapped in a particularly haunted location, meaning that it's rich in negative energy, then it's likely that a shadow person or shadow people are aware of this location and use it as a feeding ground. It's been theorized that shadow people prefer the fresh negative energy of someone that they've trapped, but the residual energy of an entity trapped in its own torment for eternity is probably just as good. While no one knows exactly why shadow people exist, one interesting idea is that they are similar to poltergeists, meaning that humans create them from their own negative energy. While most ghosts are created through outside means – murder, suicide, etc. – a poltergeist tends to be created when someone with a lot of pent-up negative energy becomes a vessel for their awful feelings. This is usually done subconsciously, although you could probably manifest a poltergeist or shadow person if you tried hard enough. If you believe that you've created a shadow person by accident, then your best bet is to try and clear all the negative energy in your life. Start meditating, cleanse your apartment, do whatever you've got to do to stop feeding that horrible creature. The most out-there theory about shadow people posits that they aren't technically ghosts or creatures of any kind, but rather they're people who are having out-of-body experiences. Some paranormal researchers believe that our consciousness leaves our body while we sleep and allows us to show ourselves to other people who are tuned into our frequency. This differentiates shadow people from ghosts in a major way because it means that shadow people aren't even dead. It could be argued that if our consciousness leaves our bodies while we sleep that they're technically the ghosts of the living although it's likely that we'll never be able to determine if this is actually what's happening. While shadow people could be a figurative shadow of a person who's still alive, spiritual medium James Van Pra claims that actual ghosts are usually what's left of a person who can't move on past the mortal plane of existence. 
Sometimes they just can't accept that they're dead. One of the things that ghosts and shadow people have in common is that they are drawn to negative energy and people who are spiritually open. The main difference in this scenario is why ghosts and shadow people are drawn to someone. Ghosts may simply be making themselves visible to you because you're open, or something happened to you at a young age that made you a magnet for spiritual activity. While shadow people are also drawn to someone who's open, it tends to be a more malicious reason. They want to feed off of you in one way or another. If they can feed off your fear when you see them, great. If they can feed off the entities around you and the fear that creates, that's also good. No one knows exactly what ghosts or shadow people even are. While they can both take on the characteristics of a human, that does not necessarily mean that they are or were human at one time or another. Some paranormal researchers believe that ghosts and shadow people are both creatures from another dimension and that they are simply manifesting in different ways. Some scientists believe that alternate dimensions exist directly next to ours. It's just their vibrations are slightly off. It's possible that shadow creatures and ghosts are actually entities from another dimension that are somehow bleeding through to our own. Whether you have found yourself haunted by a ghost or a shadow person, there are a few things you can do to get rid of both entities. Unfortunately, clearing your home of an extreme haunting is harder than it sounds. Since ghosts tend to be residual energy, you could always try to ignore them and wait around for the haunting to disperse. Although, in the case of a poltergeist, the haunting could increase if you ignore it. Paranormal researcher Lloyd Auerbach says that telling the ghost or shadow person to leave tends to work if you are forceful enough. However, if you engage the creature and you waver, you could end up with an even larger haunting than you had. If you can swing it, have paranormal experts come out and sage the haunted area or maybe call a priest. That should do the trick. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. All patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness on weekdays, plus two exclusive bonus episodes on the weekends. They also receive early access to the Weird But True video series on the Weird Darkness website. And if you sign up at only $10 per month, you also get more exclusive content, like chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. I'm currently narrating three titles at the same time, 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons, Murderous Minds Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines, and UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens. And up next, I've got Suffer the Children, American Horrors, Homicides, and Hauntings by Troy Taylor that I'm really itching to get started on. You can get more information about how to become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also, at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app 
Find me on Facebook and Twitter. Join the Weirdos of Marler House Facebook group. Get stories that I didn't have time to use in the podcast and more. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the show. Nullor Zero from Apple Podcasts said, I don't know what took me so long to find this podcast. Also, my pillow is legit. <laughs> Thank you, Null. I pre- I'll, let, uh, I'll let my pillow know that you think that. John in Bangor, Maine, sent me an email. He said, "I wanted to write to uh, I wanted to write to you to let you know of the fantastic job you do. I listened to many podcasts before and only had one I listened to. I then found your podcast and don't miss a show. While others were fun, yours is the only one I listen to now. Your narration and the way you speak to us, your audience, makes me feel like I'm listening to my buddy tell me a story." I can put on your podcast while I drive job to job, and before I know it, I'm there. Keep up the great work. Dark Sloth Demon from Apple Podcasts. Terrible name, by the way. That is just that is way too dark. Anyway, Dark Sloth Demon said, Love this podcast. It's great to listen to while I work and makes an eight-hour day turn into a very short, fun day. I spend my workday listening to scary stories and creeping myself out have to watch something funny when I get home to get the creepy vibe out of my system. Great podcast. Leanne sent me an email. She said, Darren, I wanted to stop by and say thank you for producing a great podcast every day. I've been in a rough patch the past few months. I broke up with my long-term boyfriend who suffers from severe depression. Both of my grandfathers were diagnosed with end-stage kidney cancer, and my dad recently had emergency surgery. Between work and my final semester of college, life right now, as you can imagine, is more practical than fun. This is why I appreciate Weird Darkness even more. You touch on important topics such as depression and take great care to make your listeners feel like old friends. I love that you share all comments from fellow weirdos, and I look forward to hearing the Bible verse at the end of the podcast. Weird Darkness is whimsical, fun, and spooky. It gives me a great escape from some of the scary realities I'm facing today, like employment, and something fun to listen to on my morning commute. Thank you for the great work you do and the level of honesty you bring to it. You are gifted. Signed, Leanne. Uh, Before I continue on with the rest of the comments, Leanne, I am so sorry to hear about, goodness gracious, everything that's going on in your life. Looking through this again, you you broke up with your boyfriend. Both of your grandfathers uh, have have a kidney cancer right now. Your dad's in surgery. Wow. Um, so you know what, um, weirdos, if you're listening and uh, you're praying, people, you might want to add Leanne to your prayer list. Sounds like she could definitely use it. On the plus side, though, Leanne, I am so happy to hear that I am able to bring you a little bit of escape during the day. That's exactly why I created the podcast. I wanted people to be able to get away from the real world, at least for a little while, and, you know, just relax and, you know, just immerse themselves into something that's not so realistic, I guess, for lack of better words. It's kind of odd. They're all true stories that I tell, but 
still, they have a way of escapism to them. So I'm glad that I'm helping you, Leanne, and uh, just know that I'll be praying for you and your family tonight. And then Haunted Girl, she left me a, a, a comment on my YouTube channel. This is what she said. Hi, Mr. Marler. Not that I'm anyone important, but I still want to let you know just how impressive your narrations truly are. I'm subbed to quite a few horror narrators on YouTube and can honestly say that you and about four others are the ones that you know that when you click on a new upload that you will never be disappointed. You know that you're in for a quality time from the first word spoken. I have a question for you, Mr. Marler. Will you be doing anything special for the upcoming Halloween season? I know that quite a few of the other channels will be doing a lot of those creepypastas for the month of October. However, I'm a fan of true tales. You are the top diggity dog, by the way. <laughs> uh, thank you kindly for the time you take to make words on the computer screen come to life in our minds with your narrating skills. Happy Halloween, everybody. Signed, Haunted Girl. Now, I did reply to Haunted Girl uh, when I first got this comment, but um, as I reply now, I'm going to change things up a bit because at the time, I really wasn't sure how do you make Weird Darkness more Halloweenish for Halloween because we're so essentially we're celebrating Halloween every day of the year on this show. So I really wasn't sure what to do about it. Um, I thought maybe I would look for some specific stories to use for Halloween, which I do have a few set off to the side that I might use. But uh, earlier today, uh, before I began uh, narrating today's podcast, uh, excuse, excuse me, I'm going to shift in my chair here. My butt's going to sleep. Um, there you go, a little, little insight into Marler House there. Uh, <laughs> um, but as I was uh, preparing for the show today, an idea popped into my head. What if we do, uh, and I'm not, I'm not positive I'm going to do this, but it's just an idea that I'm contemplating here, but uh, I was, we were actually talking about it on the Weirdos of Marler House Facebook group. That's actually where this began, because somebody there was asking about it as well. Uh, how about for October 31st, I'm thinking it might be fun to read only new stories submitted to, uh, submitted to me by you, my Weirdos. Instead of me going out to all the different places that I look for stories like I usually do, only stick with the stories that you directly send to me, which would, which would mean I'd need a lot more to be sent to me because I don't think I have enough for a full episode. Um, not yet, at least. But you know what? Since I'm mentioning it now, maybe it'll give people time to get them all to me because I'd probably need them by you know, October 25th or something like that. So anyway... Um, and then, and then this came up uh, later on. On the night of Halloween, what if I do Weird Darkness live? I have never done the show live before, but maybe Halloween, uh, that way you could listen as I'm reading them in real life. Or possibly, uh, maybe even via video. I'm talking to my bride about that, because if I do something on video, I would want to use some of the decorations that she's created, because she's just great at decorating stuff. And uh, I thought it might be fun. Um, this is all off the cuff now. None of this is scripted, so if, I'm, if I bounce around a bit, I'm sorry. But what I'm thinking would be cool is, and let me know what you think about this, by the way. Um, go to the Weirdos of Marler House Facebook group, if you're not already there, and uh, tell me what you think of this idea. Uh, but what I'm thinking it would be fun is 
taking the stories that only the weirdos sent to me, but and tell and uh, doing doing them live. Actually, I would uh, I would print them out and and uh, tell them live, maybe on video via YouTube, and it would be it would be during the trick or treat hours. So. And that's that would be the odd thing. I don't know if people can tune in live when it's actually happening because you might be dealing with your own trick or treaters. You know, maybe your parents and you're taking your kids trick or treating, or maybe you're at home answering the door for those trick or treaters. So this may not work. I mean, it would still get recorded and get uploaded to YouTube, but it still would be kind of fun if you're watching it live. So let me know what you think of the idea. But I'm thinking it might be fun to set up the camera outside the house. Uh, during trick-or-treat hours. So I would be reading the stories with maybe some maybe some scary music in the background. I could, I could get myself a little radio uh, with a uh, Midnight Syndicate CD or something to, to set in the background for mood and then tell the stories. But then if I ever get interrupted by a trick-or-treater, so what? It would be that much more entertaining, right? You know, I'd be talking to, to the kids who uh, come in and and uh, you know, shake their hands and everything. And then once they're once they get their candy and leave, I continue with the story where I was. So, let me know what you think of that. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, but I've never done a Weird Darkness live, and I've, I'm not really all that adept at doing YouTube live yet. So, there would be a few things that I'd have to to kind of experiment with. But if you like the idea, or if you don't like the idea, let me know either way. L look for the uh, for the weirdos of Marler House Facebook group. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, look for that. Join the group if you're not already part of it, and then tell me your opinion. I'd, I'd really like to know. Um, the following stories in this episode, they are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Ghosts and Shadows was written by Jacob Shelton. Child Killer and Cannibal was written by Wyatt Red. Ghosts of the Labor Day Hurricane posted at ghostsandghouls.com. Dr. Crippen and the Chamber of Murder and Horror posted at The Unredacted. Two of the Outlaws of Cave-In Rock was written by Troy Taylor, and The Other Flatmate was written by Jubilee. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony, and you can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Luke 10 verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. <laughs>